we have these Green Lake videos. So we saw one last week that was really cool. We're going to re-show that now. And believe it or not, at the end of the service, we're going to show one that's even cooler. All right? I mean, it's just it's crazy how well this turned out. So uh, just go ahead and let that roll. People are getting seated. Have fun. It helps to watch those several times. It seems like you miss things along the way and catch things that you didn't catch the last time. So one of the things in there that happens way too fast is there's somebody with a lot of mud 
being pushed over by somebody with a lot of mud. That was Shelly being pushed over by her brother Brian. And, um, and it's funny because yesterday we got to watch Shelly breathe for the first time in 24 years. Brian moved out. And so she's finally walking around the house and not looking around corners, wondering what's going to happen to her. Uh, Nate still reflexively flinches. But anyway, um, no, kind of fun, fun to grow up. So, all right, so we're going to break into this. And um, the first question is the Trinity. Explain it in three words or less, which isn't exactly what the person asked. I had a little fun with this. But if I were to use three words to explain the Trinity, I would say mysterious, mind-blowing, and mega-important. Uh, all three. It, the, the Trinity is a mystery. Anybody that can explain the Trinity to you is lying. They are. It's, it's inexplicable. And I mean, this is the bigness of God that's so big that you go, this is why I trust. This is why I believe. Now, we can come up with all kinds of analogies. I've heard people, you know, the egg analogy. It's one egg, but it's got a shell and a yolk and a white um, water. It freezes. It it's liquid and it's vapor. You know, so they'll come up with these different analogies. But sadly, every analogy eventually breaks down when you're trying to apply it to who God is and how God works. Um, I, I had a professor in school who, who wrote a rather thick book. It's called Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. And here's the way he defines the Trinity. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. So that, it's important for us to understand as, as Christians that we serve one God. We don't have three gods. It's not God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three gods. We have one God. But having said that, that doesn't mean that we... Um, that our one God simply shows himself in three different forms. In other words, it's not, it's not as if this God says, okay, now I'm going to appear as the Son, and now I'm going to appear as the Father, and now I'm going to appear as the Spirit. They're three distinct entities, they're three distinct persons, but they're one in being and one in substance. How you doing? All right? I mean, it's not easy to explain. And part of what we have to understand, too, when it comes to the Trinity, is that you have three distinct persons that have three distinct functions, especially when it comes to salvation. It was the Father who had the plan of salvation, and the Son who came and did the work of salvation, and it's the Spirit now who's working in us so that we can experience salvation. So all three are essential. You can't, you can't say it's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. And at the same time, it's very difficult to explain. It's just something that I think even when we get to heaven, because some people think when they get to heaven, they're going to know everything. No, when you get to heaven, you're going to be right where you are right now. But you'll be sinless, and that's going to make a huge difference. You're going to finally see with such perfect clarity that you'll get things you didn't get before. But we will learn for all of eternity. And I'm convinced about, I don't know, three million years in, we'll all gather for a few minutes and we'll say, so Trinity, do you explain it yet? And we're going to go, nope. But I know it is. I know it is. I know it's real. I know it's important. People that have tried explaining the Trinity throughout the years have ended up with a problem. See this candle right over here? They've ended up with a problem uh, called heresy, and they found themselves burned at the stake. Okay? Because unfortunately, there are people that will try to explain it in such a way that ultimately they do away one way or another with God. 
So this is one of those areas that I think we just lean into trust. And we say, God, if you say you are three persons and one God, I believe it and I trust you. And I know for some of you, you have a hard time with that. And here's the bottom line. Then you're going to have a hard time with Christianity. Christianity is based on trust. It's based on faith in a God who's bigger than smarter, bigger and smarter than us, who's wiser than any being in the universe. And so we need to be able to rest in that. Now, speaking of the Holy, uh, speaking of the Trinity, somebody has made the comment: the Holy Spirit. We don't seem to talk about him very much. Why don't we like him? We're you know we're big Jesus fans, but the Holy Spirit is kind of down over there or something. It is interesting that in in different churches you'll have different people, uh, different groups that will emphasize different. Uh, people of the Trinity. So if you're at a charismatic church, for example, there will be a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit. That's not to say they don't love God and don't love Christ, but you'll see a lot more emphasis on the Spirit. Here you'll probably see a lot more emphasis on Christ, and there will be other places that you'll see a lot more emphasis on the Father. Why is that? I don't know, because we're human beings and because that's kind of the way we work, you know? But um, I think if you want to know more about who we are on the Holy Spirit, where we stand on the Holy Spirit, this would be really helpful to you. So you go to our, our website, and there's this thing called a podcast. And if you were going to go back to the summer of 2012, starting on June 3rd, 2012, we did a six-week summer series about the Holy Spirit. In fact, the first one was entitled Pneumophobia. Why, do so, why are so many people seem to just be afraid of the Holy Spirit? What's that all about? And then we kind of broke down where we are in terms of our relationship to the Holy Spirit. So uh, again, one of the three persons of the Godhead, essential, important, Having said that, I think sometimes we have a little bit harder time relating to the Spirit because we, you know, God has been given to us as the Father. We get Father. Jesus has been given to us as the Son. We get the Son. Do you get Spirit? I mean, to some, you hear Spirit and you think Casper. You know, you think these things that just, they don't quite fit the way Father and Son do. So I think there is a little bit more of a mystery to what's going on with the Spirit. But we absolutely embrace the Holy Spirit equal part of the Trinity. Very, very important. And again, if you want to learn more, you can go there. If you're a reader, I'd encourage you to read Francis Chan's Forgotten God, which again, he's acknowledging that just there are a lot of, there are a lot of Christian denominations that tend to put a lot of emphasis on the Father and on the Son and not as much on the Holy Spirit. So let's go to the third question. We're kind of moving along. Yay. Um, why does my Bible have less books than a Catholic Bible? So Really, there are only two types of people that this question matters to in the room. Those of you that were Catholic and are still wondering, why'd you get the shorter version of the Bible? And um, those of you who have Catholic friends who look at yours and go, yours doesn't seem quite as thick as mine. What's going on there? The rest of you didn't even know that some groups have different numbers of books and whatever. And, and so what's going on there? Why is it that the Catholic Bible has a few more books than us? Uh, I would encourage you... If you want to understand this really well, there's a, there's a scholar, New Testament scholar from the 20th century uh, named F.F. F. Bruce, and he wrote a book on the biblical canon. So the canon is just, what are the books that compose the Bible? He wrote an article, it's found in PDF form, there's the address, but honestly, if you were to just type in F.F. F. Bruce uh, biblical canon, this article will come up as one of the first things on Google. And he goes on to explain basically, how did we get the 66 books that we have. How did we land with these 66? 
And I think it's a really helpful explanation. So if this is something that you've been puzzled by, you wonder about, I'd encourage you to go there. I just want to read several excerpts from that article, and hopefully they'll help a little bit. He says of us, of Protestants, we accept the 39 books. So what, what we need to understand is that the issue is in the Old Testament. Catholic Bible, Protestant Bible, whatever you want to call it, have the same number of books in the New Testament. It's the Old Testament where the difference resides. So we accept the 39 books because they make up the Hebrew Bible, which our Lord and the apostles acknowledged. So the Old Testament, you'll hear references to the the law and the prophets. The, the, The Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible is basically divided into three sections. The law, which is that first five books from Moses. The prophets, which is toward the end. And then the middle, which is the writings, Psalms, Proverbs. Those are the three types of writing that are found in the Old Testament. The the law, the prophets, and the writings. Jewish people acknowledged these 39 books as the Old Testament. So I want to be careful the way I say this because I'm, I'm not into just warfare between denominations. I don't think it's helpful at all. I don't think it's helpful to pick on other people for the way they think or what they think or anything like that. But I really think that the burden of explanation for this is not on us, it's on the Catholic Bible because we're following what the Jewish people followed. This was, this was, this was the Bible that was handed to us from the Jewish people it's actually the Catholic part that has gone ahead and added the, sec- the, several, the, the section of books. So Josephus was an early church historian. He's not an apostle. Don't get that. He's, he was just a historian of that time. And it says Josephus, writing toward the end of the first century, treats the whole canon of Hebrew Scripture, so in other words, the 39 books, as closed and recognizes its contents between, to be the 22 books in all, a total designation coinciding with the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, this is where things are going to get a little confusing, but only for a moment. I've said 39 books. He's saying 22 books. What's going on here? In the Hebrew Bible, they don't first and second a lot of things. So you don't have first and second Samuel, you have Samuel. You don't have first and second Chronicles, you have Chronicles. So there are different books that, that we have that are broken out for us, to where in the Hebrew Bible it's one. So there are 22 is our 39. It's all the same content. They've just divided it a little bit differently. Going a little bit more, he says, the 39 books which make up the Old Testament according to our common reckoning are the books which from the beginning of the Christian era, at any rate, have been accepted as the books of the Hebrew Bible. The 12 minor prophets are counted as one in the Hebrew Bible. So here we have 12 books that they scoop in as one. The book of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles are counted as one. Ezra and Nehemiah are counted as one. And this explains the difference between our 39 and their number. Now, if you're talking about this with somebody and they're trying to disprove that your Bible's legit and all that kind of stuff, you're probably going to hear something about the Council of Jamnia. Council of Jamnia happened in 90 A.D., it was not actually a Christian council. It was a, 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 group of, a group of scribes, a group of rabbis who got together, and they were talking about the books that should compose the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, it's funny because as you start to read through this, you find there's a lot of uh, disagreement as to what happened at the Council of Jamnia. 
And basically, you see this list. When I, I looked at a lot of Catholic sites just to find out, okay, what's their perspective on this? And, and basically, what they say, the Council of Jamnia had these four standards that they used that determined whether or not a book belonged in uh, the Old Testament. Further, they'll talk a lot about Luther and the Reformation. And, and Jamnia, as well as Luther and the Reformation, tend to be referred to in a derogatory way to kindly say, Basically, they didn't know what they're talking about. We're right. Just stick with the extra books. You'll be okay. Uh, I really think, as I've read it through, the Council of Jamnia was primarily to decide how in the world to understand the Song of Solomon, which, by the way, if you do, uh, I'd be glad to hear your explanation. It's a, an interesting book, a fascinating book that I think really just gives us an idea of the love story that goes on between Christ and his church. But um, that was the primary thing going on with that council. So let me read you one more section. The canon of Scripture refers to the final collection of inspired books in the Bible. The Catholic Bible contains seven books that do not appear in the Protestant Old Testament. These seven writings are called the Deuterocanonical or Second Law books. Protestants usually call these the Apocrypha, which Apocrypha doesn't mean evil, bad, throw them out. It simply means hidden. Books that they consider outside the canon. These seven writings include 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Tobit, Judith, Sirach, Wisdom, and, and Barak, along with additional passages in Daniel, so Daniel's a little bit longer in a Catholic Bible, and Esther's a little bit longer in a Catholic Bible. Before the time of Christ, these writings were in the Jewish Greek Septuagint. So basically, they took the Hebrew Bible, they wrote it into Greek, and they were added during that time, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, but they were not included in the Hebrew text. So you kind of see some of the confusion there. Let me just go through this list of, of statements. And some of this I just put my notes here so that I'd know what to talk about. So the fact is that not just now, but throughout the time that Scripture has existed, there has been some disagreement as to what belongs in the canon. One of the big fights that the Samaritans had with the Jewish people, they only believed the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were holy scripture. They didn't believe any of the rest. They only believed those, those five. And, and to some degree, you can see their understanding of it. I mean, Moses speaks with great authority about following the law. You had to follow the book of the law, obey the book of the law. So they only hung on those. There are some books that will um, be mentioned sometimes, as I put it in quotes, questionable books. Martin Luther himself struggled a little bit with uh, James in particular. He thought James taught faith by works, which it clearly does not. Some have struggled again with Song of Solomon. What's that doing in the Bible and why is that there? And then there are those who have struggled with Esther because there's no reference to God in the book. God is just kind of behind the scenes and you're seeing the work of God, but you don't see his name. So you have these people throughout the years, Luther and others, that have questioned, do some of these actually belong in the canon? Here's the tough part. Jesus didn't arrive, hand somebody a piece of paper and say, these are the 39 books that belong in your Old Testament, and here are the 27 that will be in your New Testament. Throughout time, we have recognized certain books to be part of the Bible. How did that happen? Well, it really happens, it comes down to seeing the consistency between the books, seeing themes working together and how they work together, and that ultimately those books belong together. There was about a 400 intertestamental period of silence from the end of Malachi on through uh, basically the angel speaking to Zechariah. And during that 400 years, that's when those additional seven books appear uh, from the other Bible. 
you'll find uh, other books mentioned in the Bible that are not actually part of Scripture. As you're looking at Chronicles and Kings, you'll see reference to a book about the kings, about the history of the kings. We don't have that book. So there were other books that were written that were not necessarily part of our Bible, but they're out there. So let me get into some of, some of this other stuff. If you watch History Channel, you're probably fascinated by aliens, but you're also you're learning a lot of other things, like, like the fact that there are, are a gazillion Bible books. There's a gospel according to just about everybody, maybe even you, who knows. And I mean, there are all these gospels, and the fact is, yeah, there were a ton of books written by a lot of people that are not necessarily Scripture. A lot of those books appeared hundreds of years after Christ. And if you get the chance to read some of them, if you're reading them, you kind of go, yeah, this is not consistent at all with what we found in the rest of Scripture. So uh, a lot of the understanding of the coming together of the canon comes down to the timing of the writing. Was it near the coming? I mean, if it's written a thousand years after Christ, it's not a part of the Bible. And is it consistent with the rest of what's going on in the canon? So the last word that I have on this is just, please, when you're, when you're thinking about these things, it's really important to consider the source. We are the most well-informed, ignorant generation that's ever existed. We are. You can go confirm any theory you have. There's some nut sitting in his underwear in his mother's basement that wrote exactly what you think, and he put it on the internet. I'm not kidding. And I am blown away. I am, it's not me, by the way, but I, I'm blown away. I'm blown away at the number of people that'll say, well, I found this on the interweb. And it's like, that's neat. But, you know, just because it's out there doesn't mean it's true. And so even trying to, trying to discern this was crazy. There's so much information. Just because the information has a WWW in front of it doesn't mean it's true. We have to use discernment. We've got to use our brains. You've got to use your sniffer and take some time to figure out, is this real or is this not? So don't just buy it because, I mean, if it's on the History Channel, that's great wonderful, but it might not be true. At least what I was learning yesterday about Korean aliens. Kim knows I can't, I can't stand Willy Wonka. He scares the lifeblood out of me. I mean, that and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang gave me bad dreams growing up. Just bad, bad movies, okay? They should be banned from the face of the earth. And I'm not a banner, but anyway. Um, so she knows I'm not crazy about it. So she leaves the room, turns on History Channel, and they're talking about Korean aliens. And I'm like, did you think I'd be interested in this? Anyway, so just because it's out there doesn't mean it's true. Don't buy everything just because you see it in print, all right? You've really got to take the time uh, for some discernment and see things through. Um, what should we do with these extra books, these deuterochronical books or the apocryphal books? I, I think they're a fascinating read, and you should read them as a history book, like you'd read any history book. And parts of it may be true, and parts of it may be not. But in terms of referring to them for, for scriptural authority, we would not. One other comment about all this that I thought, I heard this on the radio not too long ago, and I thought it was a really good book, good comment. The guy said, you got to remember, the Bible isn't necessarily a book. The Bible's a library. And I thought that was a good way to say it. It's not a singular book in that somebody said, Moses didn't sit down and write 66 books all at once. It was written over thousands of years. So in a sense, we have this library, and there's never been a more consistent, beautiful library in the history of Earth. 
I mean, to, to think that over the course of thousands of years and all these different characters and personalities, you can have such incredible unity. And the reason you have the unity is because you had an author named the Holy Spirit who made sure that everything came together with a beautiful, perfect flow. So um, hopefully that was helpful. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Well, there's a sermon series. You know, I mean, that, that's a... Um, let's switch it. Why does God let good things happen to bad people? The Bible says the Lord reigns on the just and the unjust. Both of them get rain. Uh, if, the, if, if good things can happen to bad people, why shouldn't bad things happen to good people? I mean, here's what it all comes down to, I think. And, and this is such an oversimplification. It makes me ill. So, um, classic problem of evil. The philosophical problem of evil looks something like this. If God is good and we believe he is, and God is all-powerful and we believe he is, why doesn't he just do away with evil. He has the ability to do it. He has the desire, the will to do it. He knows it's bad. Why doesn't he just get rid of it? Why doesn't he just today drive a stake in the ground, boom, that's it, evil's done, utopia, here we are. And I think what it comes down to really is something that, something that I think uh, a lot of Christians struggle with, and that is that we, we, like to, we like to isolate or fixate on a particular virtue to the exclusion of all the others. So, you know, you'll have people who only want to fixate, for example, on love. Love, 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 love. And forget that there is an issue of justice and there, there is an issue of truth and all these other things. They want to choose their one particular virtue and just kind of hang there and not look at anything else. I think this is one of those areas that we can have a tendency to only focus on the goodness of God and not focus wholly completely, W-H-O-L-Y, wholly and completely on who God is. You see, God... God had a desire when he created human beings. He wasn't looking to make little robots who would just love him because he made them and said, you will love me. If true love is to exist, true love, hate has to exist. The opposite has to exist. If I'm going to choose to love and accept you, I also have to be able to say, I don't want you. I reject you. He gave us that ability. He puts this tree in the garden and he says, you can eat it or you can love me. You can do what I say, you can obey me or you can disobey me. And somehow God decided that it was of great value to him to have billions and billions of people who have the ability and choice to say, I love you or I don't love you. But that kind of world is going to involve sin. That kind of world is going to involve disease. That kind of world is going to involve hardship and pain and misery. And that doesn't just happen to the bad people. That happens to everybody. It happens to everyone. Believe me, I've struggled with this one. I mean, I've lost friends. I, I lost one friend, you know, almost, my goodness, almost 15 years ago now. And I remember when she died and my fight with God was, I have a list of people you could have taken that would have made my life a lot better. What are you thinking? I have a list of people who are just nasty and mean. And you took her? Why? 
Now, this is just me talking true. I know. Some of you, this scares you to death. You know, you're like, my goodness, he's supposed to just do nice things. What do you mean? He, has, he wants people's houses to burn down? Are you kidding me? Really? <clears throat> this is what happens when you're really wrestling with faith. You're kind of like, God, I really would have preferred she stay, and you take someone else. Why'd you do that? Because it's his world, and he decides, and, and I get to learn to trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay my friend, yet will I trust him. So why do bad things happen to good people? Because God has decided he wants to give us the ability to choose to love him or to choose to not love him. And if we're going to have that choice, it's going to result in a world where bad things happen to good people. How do we understand verses that say we're to have nothing to do with certain people? So we read one of these not too long ago. Let me give you a couple of others. They're not easy to read. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and are self-condemned. That's in the Bible. The part we believe in, not those seven books that we don't. That's in the Bible, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is written about a relationship that was going on in a church where basically this man was in an incestuous relationship uh, and it was just bad news, all right? And they're both claiming to be believers. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, if there were a period there, we'd have problems, because basically that would say, my goodness, we, we just pay, practically can't be friends with anybody, right? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. I love the way Paul says that. He says, lost people are going to act like lost people. Get used to it. And if you were to cut yourself off from every person who acts like a lost person, you'd be lonely. You would have no relationships. But I am now writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Now that sounds harsh too, right? What, what's he saying here? What's going on here? Paul's not saying that he wants a group of people that just walk around and punish each other. What he was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is that this incestuous sin had been so normalized in the church that there was not even an ounce of guilt about it. There was just like, hey, we love this guy so much. Love can overcome anything. Don't worry about it. And Paul is teaching that God's basically saying there are times, there are times that a sin is so severe that we need to say to somebody who's claiming to be part of the body of Christ, uh, we need to be separated for a while in order for you to have the chance to come back to your senses. Fellowship is a powerful thing. This unity that we have together is a powerful thing. And when that unity, when that fellowship gets broken for a while, sometimes that's enough to bring a person to their senses and to say, my goodness, what I'm doing is dreadfully wrong. This has got to stop. He goes on to say, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? You, are you... Are you are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So a lot of those disassociation passages really have to do with that point that a believer has come to a place of such callous, excessive sin that the only thing that will help them to turn back to God is to be actually put out of the church for a while. 
uh, you might call it excommunication, but that they're put out of the church for a while in order to come to their senses that they're actually living like someone that's lost and they need the chance to come back to God. This, none of these verses are used as a, as a, as a, a, a justification to simply cut off somebody because you have a minor disagreement with them. We don't get along on this or we don't agree on this pointed theology or something like that. These are severe sins, severe sins that require a wake-up call, not just from an individual, but from the body, from the church. One of the questions that was raised was basically something like this, help me to lead someone to Jesus. How do I do that? How do I help another person come to Christ? And so what I want to do, I want to show you a tool that we have. If you were to go to our website, there's a page called First Steps. And the first first step is the first step everybody's got to take. It's the first step that talks about how you enter into a relationship with God. And I would say to you, go home and watch it, but I suspect that a lot of you would kind of forget. So I thought, let's watch it now. We're going to go ahead and watch it now. So you have a little compulsory homework to do right now and a little break from my voice. But this just kind of gives you how the gospel works and what it's all about. So buttons being pushed, here we go. There is only one story that answers life's most essential questions and gives a lasting sense of purpose and meaning. It's the story that inspires all other stories. It's the true story that defines every one of us. This is that story. How did it all begin? Like all stories, this one begins in the beginning with the author, who is God. He spoke everything into being. With a word, galaxies appeared with stars and planets. Earth was designed for life to flourish. Everything God made was gloriously good and breathtakingly perfect. The highlight of God's creation was the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. God entrusted everything he created to his beloved children, giving just one rule. They were not to eat fruit from a specific tree. They lived in loving obedience, worshiping God as their heavenly Father, and enjoying perfect harmony with creation, each other, and God. Considering our world today, its obvious perfect peace didn't last. Turmoil, war, sickness, troubles. We each have our share. What went wrong? It started when a fallen angel named Satan grew jealous of God and determined to ruin the perfection of creation. Satan took the form of a serpent and enticed Adam and Eve to question God's goodness and rebel against his one rule. In disobedience, they ate the fruit and peace unraveled, ushering in sin and death, which still plagues us today. If we are honest, we are very much like Adam and Eve. We all rebel against our Heavenly Father, making our hearts heavy with fear guilt, and shame. Our bodies are weary with sickness, disease, and death. Earth is afflicted with storms, calamities, and disasters. Even worse, sin has separated us from God, causing a permanent divide, a miserable separation called hell. The fallout of sin has been catastrophic. It's inescapable with no way to fix it, leaving us all to wonder, is there any hope? The love that prompted God to create us also prompted Him to send a Savior who would set everything right again. 
As centuries passed, God shared exact details of the coming Savior's birth, life, and death. Everything in the Bible points to this rescuer. Almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth as God the Son to fulfill the promise. He was born miraculously, as his mother was a virgin. Just like us, Jesus grew up and experienced life on earth. But unlike us, Jesus never sinned and always obeyed the Father. When Jesus was in his 30s, he began teaching all around Israel, pointing people to God's kingdom and performing many miracles. After a few years, he was wrongly accused and sentenced to an agonizing death on a cross. Jesus lovingly gave up his perfect life as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of mankind. He died a perfect death, taking our place, the innocent for the guilty. But the grave couldn't hold Jesus. Three days later, God brought Jesus to life again. Jesus defeated sin by dying on the cross and defeated death by rising from the dead. Today, Jesus sits at God's right hand as king and judge over all creation. This is the story of rescue God has authored. He invites us, through repentance and faith, to make his story of rescue the one we trust in and live from. When we do, everything changes. And now, what will the future hold? For everyone who trusts in Jesus alone for rescue, God has promised to restore your heart and set you free from sin's hold. Because God is loving, kind, merciful, forgiving, tender-hearted, and true. God has also promised to make all things new. One day, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, forever free from sin. Everything that causes pain and sadness will be gone. God has also promised to be with us forever. The moment you trust in Jesus, your relationship with God is restored because Jesus has closed the divide sin caused. Getting to know this all-loving God starts today and continues forever. For God's story never ends. You can make God's story the foundation of your life even now by admitting your need for God's rescue, asking forgiveness for your sin, trusting in Jesus Christ alone to rescue you, following Jesus in faith from this moment on. This is God's story. Will you make it yours? So let's go ahead, give your body a little break, stand up, twirl around, do something, say hi to someone. Let's go ahead and get a little break in here. All right. So help me to lead someone to Jesus. A couple, couple things on this and we'll move on. There are so many great tools, this being one. If somebody's asking those kinds of questions, you may, you may guide them to our website and say, watch this video and let it be a conversation starter because that's what it really comes down to. I think a lot of times we're, we're so afraid to have this, these conversations with other people because we're afraid we won't know all the answers. You won't know the answers until you know the questions. So as a person starts asking you the questions, you know what you'll do? You'll say, I'll find out. 
you don't know the answer, you'll find out. You'll learn what it is and have the conversation. The other piece of leading a person in Christ really comes down to this. Live authentic Christianity in front of them. And what do I mean by that? I do not mean live perfection in front of them because that would not be authentic Christianity. You, you live out Christ in such a way, in, with such humility, that you know you're broken, you know you do dumb sometimes, and when you do dumb, you apologize. And you say, that's not consistent with what it means to be a Christ follower. I'm sorry for that. When people see that kind of softness in you, not a, not a, not a highbrow sort of uh, perfectionism that looks down on everybody, but when they see that kind of humility in you, that is going to be incredibly winsome. And you're going to have the opportunity for those conversations to talk to other people. Someone asked, talk about grace. Does grace mean you can live however you want? Um, you know how, like, is it a process or is it a point? Yes. Or, you know, we had those where it could go two ways. Um, does grace mean you have to, you can live however you want? The, the clear answer is no. You can't. You can't. There have always been two extremes. We see them played out in every generation of Christianity. On one hand are the legalists, the people who want so many rules you can barely breathe. And then there are the licentious, the ones who say, God's grace is so big that I can sin up a storm. It doesn't matter. Everything's forgiven. Let me just have fun. And, and, and God says, both are wrong. Both are wrong. We do not live licentiously, nor do we live legalistically. There's a huge difference between grace being free and grace being cheap. Grace is not cheap. It costs God the blood of his son. But grace is completely free to anybody who will believe. I don't think we need a lot more than Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? And if you read the rest of Romans 6, what Romans 6 is saying is that anybody who's claiming that grace is so big, I can do what I want, does not understand grace. They just don't understand grace. I think the essential term in all of this is relationship. Been married to my wife for almost 31 years. We have a fantastic marriage. And part of the reason we have a fantastic marriage is because we respect each other in the relationship. I would never do something that takes advantage of the relationship. Neither would she. So I wouldn't find myself doing something that would violate, for example, my marriage vow and say, well, she loves me so much, she'll overlook it. It won't be any big deal. Does that make sense? Uh, this relationship matters to me so much that I'm going to do what I can to preserve the relationship. I wouldn't say, how close can I get to the edge of sin and still keep her? How, you know, how, how, how close, how close, and she'll still stick around. I'm going to say, I'm going to stay so far over here that the relationship stays intact and the same is true with grace and God. It's a relationship. I don't do whatever I can to violate the relationship. I want to make sure that the relationship stays intact so I, I do what I can to live a righteous life. How do I offer correction to someone so they won't feel judged? Well, okay, first of all, I struggle a little bit with the question, okay? And here's why. It's impossible to correct somebody without them feeling judged. And it's impossible to control another person's feelings or emotions, you can trial, you can couch it perfectly, you can write the best letter you've ever written, you can come up with perfect wording, you can, you can think you can do it perfectly, and bottom line, there's nothing you can do to guarantee that another person is not going to feel like they've been judged. 
Here's what the Bible says to us, Ephesians 4.15. We use this again and again because it's such an essential relationship uh, verse. Instead, we speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Truth in love. Truth in love. You'll hear people do the whole, well, I just had to tell the truth. You know, and they use the truth like a butcher knife. They just take somebody out at the knees. That, no, you don't just have to tell the truth. You have to tell the truth in love. Or someone will say, I love them too much to tell them the truth. No, you don't love them at all if you're not willing to tell them the truth. It's the balance of both. Truth and love, both go together, not one or the other. Now, sometimes truth told in love is going to sting. Do you love a person enough to allow the sting to be there so that they might have the chance to change? I think a lot of times we want to correct somebody because we want to get even with them or we want to diminish them, not because we love them. So the question really is, am I telling the truth because I love them and I want to love them back to the path to God? Uh, some questions to ask. We always need to ask these questions. I think they'd be helpful. Why do I want to or need to correct them? What's my motive? Why do I want to do this? Uh, sometimes we'll find that our motive just stinks and we need to be quiet for a little while. How, when, and where am I going to do this? It would not be a good idea to stand up right now and correct somebody in this room right? Or for me to take advantage of this moment and call someone out and just start dealing with it. Uh, There's the proper setting for correction, not humiliating people in front of other people. Am I the best person to do this? Maybe we have too much history. Maybe someone else needs to be the one to do this. If I say or do nothing, what's going to happen? I think it's an important question to ask. Have I sought God's face? Has God been any part of this conversation? Or is this just me wanting to do my own thing? And is it possible that God is doing something here and I need to stay or step out of the way? Is it possible that God is doing a work in this person's life and my desire to control and fix it is actually short-circuiting what God is doing? So I think there are times that we're supposed to be silent and I think there are times that we're supposed to speak and I think God is giving you the Holy Spirit to be able to discern between the two. But it isn't always one or the other. Sometimes we need to speak the truth in love, and sometimes we need to be silent in love. But they're always ruled by love. Um, end times questions. Someone asked, uh, why don't we talk more about the end times, or shouldn't we be talking more about the end times, or, you know, man, let's get us a good series going on the end times, those sorts of things. There are a few things about the end times. I have four words for you. Fascination. My goodness, everybody's fascinated by this. I mean, this is good stuff, right? You sit there and you're kind of dissecting the book of Revelation and trying to figure out what that thing is. It is a bug. Is it a helicopter? What is it? Oh, wow, wow. It's fascinating. I, I'll have conversations with lost people. They want to stop talking about Jesus and start talking about, you know, the market on the head. Well, could it be this? Could it be that? Um, so fascination is involved. Speculation. My goodness, I'm old enough to remember Mikhail Gorbachev. Do you know how many people turned his heads 17 different ways to find out if the birthmark was 666 in some particular pattern? I mean, and, and I promise you, I, I read the books about Saddam Hussein being the Antichrist. I suspect after this next election, no matter who wins, there will be books about that person being the Antichrist, you know? So uh, speculation runs rampant. We're always trying to figure it out. Obsession. Some people just, they don't, they don't even look at any of the rest of the Bible. I mean, they only own the book of Revelation, and they stay there. And honestly, sometimes I think it'd be a distraction. It can be a distraction from holy living, that we get fascinated with this topic over here, and we get distracted 
from holy living. So here's where I am on the end times, okay? Are you ready for this? This is my explanation of Revelation and Daniel and all the other prophetic books. Jesus is coming back. He's coming soon. Are you ready? It's not nearly as sexy as talking about who might be the Antichrist, you know? Oh, that stuff's cool. Woo! Jesus is coming back. He's coming soon. Are you ready? That's the message of all of it. And you can sit in utter fascination trying to figure out all the details, but know this. It's closer today than it was yesterday. And I would say that in my lifetime, it's a lot closer than I thought it would be. I don't think we have a whole lot, a whole lot more time left on this earth, the way things are all going, coming together. But having said that, here's the question. He will come. He came, he will come. Don't doubt his word. He's going to do it soon. That's what imminent means. Imminent means he could walk into the room at any moment and you don't know when it's going to be. Are you ready? One of my favorite verses is actually the very first devotional I ever did for a youth group. It was based on this verse. And now, dear children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him as his coming. This is one of the best end times verses you'll find. Jesus could come here in a moment. Will you be confident? Will you be caught doing right? Or will you be caught doing bad? Confident and unashamed. I'm living a lifestyle that brings a smile to the face of God. Or ashamed. I sure wish you hadn't come right now. Greatest challenge and greatest opportunity before Southfield. I'm going to save these for next week. We've come to the end, believe it or not, this is cool. And I'm saving them for next week because next week we're starting a series about how to discern uh, the, de- the desire of God for your life. How do you discern that? How do you know what he wants you to do? How do you know the next decision? How do you know the friendships you're supposed to have? How do you know the will of God for your life? How does that all work together? And, and so um, I think that talking about the greatest opportunities that lie before our church, as well as the greatest challenges that lie before our church, fall perfectly with the concept of God's will for us. What does God desire for us? So, so we're going to actually save those as an opening for next week. And believe it or not, that's the last slide. We only had to do away with everything else in a service in order to get through it all. That worked out very well. So... But, of course, we would never do away with the offering. So our servers are coming right now. <laughs> uh, our servers are going to come now. They're going to collect the offering. I'm going to give you a couple of announcements. Again, thank you for doing this today. Here's one of the things that I've appreciated about our church for a long, long time. We have this value. It's called flexibility. We're willing to be flexible. And, you know, there are a lot of churches that, my goodness, you'd have to go through 17 years' worth of committees and everything else in order to come to a decision as to whether or not we're going to have a service or not have a service or how that's going to work. And just the tremendous flexibility you all have exhibited throughout the years has been really incredible. So is, is the next picture the, the cubes? It's not sh- Oh, thank you. Okay, it wasn't showing on mine. Thank you. So, my goodness, do you see that date, July 11th? It's July. It's kind of funny to watch people who are involved in planning camp right now because they're all, a universal statement, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> there, there's a lot of stuff that has yet to be done that's still squeaking forward. But, but we thought we'd introduce you to two very important characters for the week. Uh, these guys will be 
part of the story. So some cool stories coming out of Quest in that week. And uh, you are officially on the last day of general registration. So again, if you've not signed up yet, get on the website, get that registration done. It's incredibly important. Let me check in real quick. Do you have youth group tonight, today? None today. Do you Wednesday? No? Okay, cool. So you're off this week. Two weeks. You're off for two weeks. Okay, good. Glad I checked. So, um, Refuge and Revive are off for two weeks, which means your chairs can stay in place, which is great for you. Right down here in this corner after a service, normally every service, there will be someone over here that's more than willing to spend some time praying with you. So you have a request, something that's weighing heavy on your heart or something you want to celebrate uh, in prayer, make sure you come on down here and you can go ahead and do that. Every Sunday as you leave, you have the opportunity on either side table to take a Bible. It's New Living Translation, nice, easy American English translation of the Bible. If you don't have one like that, you take it. It's yours, uh, and we hope you'll go ahead and put it to use. There are also envelopes back there. You don't have to use an envelope for your offering. Some people still like to, and so we make those available. They're also addressed, so if during the summer you're on vacation you want to mail in your offering, you can go ahead and do that. That works out really well. So um, thanks to all of you who parked on the grass today. You made space. That was our big concern. We knew we'd probably be okay in here. We were a little worried out there. And again, thank you for your flexibility. If this was your first Sunday, come back. We're not always weird. There, there are Sundays that we actually sang and, you know, and then that sort of stuff. So it's, it, there, it, we normally have a great time. So we always do. So speaking of great times, I've got to show you this last video. Uh, there's, there's just way too much footage of what our kids did at Green Lake. Way too much stuff. And, um, you know, like last week I watched it and I went, that was the best. And then I see this one and I'm going, oh my word. I, this was just, what I really want to know from those of you that went, was it as fun as these videos are? More. Wow, crazy. All right. So we're going to turn off the lights. And, and I promise you, I mean, uh, just watch.
So if you go to the website, bottom of the page, there's a YouTube icon. You can go, you can watch that again and again. If you're having a particularly sad 4th of July, just go all the way to the end and laugh with Bob, (laughs) happiest man in the universe. So glad you were here today. Let's stand. We're going to pray as we leave. Father in heaven, oh, we are so grateful for the good times that we can have because of the relationship we have with you. We thank you for uh, the gifts you've given us in our life, the the gift of of creation there at Green Lake, to be able to experience that time together. Uh, Our kids just had the best time working and playing in that beautiful sacred space. I thank you for your word and the way it instructs us and guides us. The fact that you've told us we have everything we need for life and godliness. Nothing's been left out. There's nothing that we need to know that you haven't, that nothing that we have, nothing that we can't know. You've given it to us all so that we can live the kind of life that brings you great pleasure. We're grateful for that. And now, God, I pray as we go and enjoy this weekend together with our family and our friends that we will continue uh, in that great joy that is found in that wonderful laugh. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, thank you for being here. Enjoy your weekend.